0: I have the privilege this morning of welcoming our guest speaker. I um, also have the privilege of a day off, which is nice. Uh, but uh, I met uh, Peter Lublink in 2012. I was working as an associate pastor at the Salvation Army Croc Center here in town. And um, I was what they call a soldier, which uh, would be a member of the church. And uh, Peter and his wife were officers in the Salvation Army. They were pastors. And uh, when you're a member of the Salvation Army Church, they, they, they've got this, this uniform. It kind of looks like a, a pilot's uniform. Um, it's pretty classy. But uh, I was part of a generation of 20-somethings that thought it would be cool to design our own uniforms out of uh, military surplus from thrift stores and iron-on patches. And I uh, found Peter on Facebook doing the same thing in Canada. And we stuck, struck up a conversation, and he invited me to his church uh, on, in Victoria, and uh, we lost track for a while. He did some other things that I'm sure he'll tell you about, but we connected a couple years ago, and it um, uh, just so happens that he wanted to come out and visit. So uh, I'm excited to have him. So would you welcome Peter?
1: Thanks, man. Yeah. It's good to see you guys. Well, most of you. I mean, I don't know who any of you are, but it's, I think, at this point, I think we all get along. So it's good to see you. I hope it's good to be here for you. Um, I know that coming to church takes an effort, right? And you never know if you can get your money, monies back, but I hope today's worthwhile. I've already enjoyed it. I have to say, you guys are wonderful. Like the music, the vibes, just the people all already saying hello. So it's exciting to be I wish I lived in town, honestly. It's like, I'd come here. For sure I would. As I said, I used to live on the West Coast. And so there's some, um, you know, when you, when you have a new person speak, it's less interesting to, for you to know where I'm from, but it is good for you to know my bias, right? Because we all have bias. So I thought I'd just tell you a little bit about what I'm bringing to the table so that you know, you can filter out some of that stuff as I talk, as we look at Colossians. So I am Canadian. So already, if I get too political, you can like just disregard some of that stuff if it gets too outlandish. And then after Victoria, uh, I had moved to the Middle East, to the desert, and spent eight years Uh, There in the country of Kuwait. Uh, And just so if you're situating yourself in geography, just a couple hours south of Iraq and a couple of hours to the Saudi Arabian border and just beside Iran. So just in that vibe, you know what I mean? So it has a little energy to it sometimes in the Middle East. uh, We pastored a church there the last five years. And obviously that has its complications uh, when you're pastoring a church in a a country where it's kind of illegal. So it is good to be here and just have like just you know, talking. And and I was saying to to Zach, like we would never have promotional materials because like I didn't really want the police to find those. So it's cool that you would just have postcards for your church. Like the simplest things, man. It's good. It's good. Good things are happening. So I'm Canadian. I lived in Kuwait. And when you're in Kuwait, like no one's like, it's it's not helpful to be a Christian in terms of popularity. And so one of the things I bring to this is like, we'll say a bias. I've come back to North America and I'm, I'm just shook by the celebrity culture in church. It's like, oh, if you can be a Christian and are a good speaker, you could like make a ton of money in the private jets. And I'm just like, I'm coming from this place of seeing people who are just struggling and suffering and thinking, oh, this, this doesn't sound right. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I feel like I'm sort of anti-celebrity culture or something. And the other thing I'll say, and this is a big one, because this bias is gonna be all through my sermon today, is I work for a charity that uh, provides pediatric care for kids across Africa. And I'm definitely going to be asking you for money in a second, so just start digging. Um, so, so what we do, and just for some context, you know what we're about. Uh, we train pediatric surgeons, and these surgeons are African surgeons serving within Africa. So we're training them as accredited pediatric surgeons. That's like a three- to five-year fellowship. And then they go to their home countries as missionaries. So they're serving in their home countries. You don't need to train some white guy like myself to fly across the world to learn a new language. They're serving in their home country. They're taking care of their own people, but we support them with the training. And then when they get to their home countries, wages are awful in in a lot of places in the world. And so one of the things we figured out early on is if we train someone and they now are the only accredited pediatric surgeon for the entire country, which sounds like a great blessing and opportunity for ministry, uh, and then they get offered a salary from the hospital that's like $400 a month, you're like, oh, so that's a problem. So, then we started supporting those folks as our missionaries to say, we're gonna, and we spent about 30 grand maybe a year for each of these surgeons to make sure they're getting a fair living wage and they're not moving to another country where they can support their family. They can take care of their family and they can take care of the community. And then, anytime a kid can't afford surgery, we'll pay for that cost. So, we are helping every year a couple thousand kids. We've done just shy of 40,000 surgeries for children who have very little other options. We're doing wheelchairs for kids and it's all a, a very Jesus-centered ministry. So every one of our staff, from the therapists to the surgeons, these are all self-identified missionaries serving their home countries. In the same way that I hope you see yourself as a missionary to Coraline here. Uh, they are missionaries to their homelands and serving uh, as partners in the gospel that we as people in the West get to partner with them. So I, I'm gonna show a brief video of one of the folks that we've helped And then we're going to come and we're going to look at the book of Colossians and get to the real meat of things in terms of what I was asked to do here. First of all, thank you for taking the time to watch. I mean, you could have, you probably weren't going to walk out, but I appreciate you took time to watch that video. It's hard sometimes to get yourself excited about a cause that's on the opposite side of the planet. Some of us have a hard time loving our neighbors when they're like three feet away. And it is difficult to like really deeply and profoundly care about people on the other side of the world. But as Christians, we are people united under one gospel, one kingdom, and and our borders don't matter so much, whether you're Canadian or American, or in this case, Kenyan, those things don't matter. We are meant to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if you are able and you can participate, we would love to find some churches and some individuals who would back this ministry and help it happen. So if you made that happen, I even stuck envelopes there to keep it simple for you. Shove all your money in there and send it, send it to a good cause. We'll take it. I'm not going to be like, oh, no, no, we'll take it. Well, absolutely, we'll take it. Uh, I was talking about bias earlier. I also, I realized I walk a lot, you know, and, and I have a, like a little tiny baby, like eight months old. And You know when parents do the sway, you know what I mean? And even when you're not holding the baby, you're still swaying. So if, if I'm like, if I start swaying, I don't know if I've always done that, but I'm definitely doing that. I've noticed that I was standing in the airport swaying like this, and I was like, I don't have a baby right now. Why am I doing that? But anyway, so if, if I start moving, it's like watching a tennis match or something. Um, so we, I'm excited we get to look at Colossians. And I don't know if you always do this kind of sort of Bible work, but the way, I mean, you always look at the Bible in church, but where you just like passage by passage, I love it. I, I think that is the way we really understand scripture because these letters were meant to be read to a community and to be understood as a whole. So I love how you're doing this. And you're in like 17 weeks into chapter one, I think. And that's, that's incredible, man. So I'm pumped. I'm I'm really thrilled. That is how we like to have our church as well. And so, um, I'm I'm we're gonna kind of go through it, and 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 hopefully uh, hopefully we can shed some understanding and 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 look at at least from one perspective what some of this says. So I think it's important that you'd find it in your own Bibles. So again, that's Colossians one twenty four. Um, anyone who stands up on a stage, they have a tendency to mumble their words sometimes. So if I misread anything, it's really good for you to have the scripture in front of you so you can say, this is this is God's writing here, and you can separate that from my words. So we'll, we'll have a look, and for me, I find it useful to read a little bit of the passage again. I know we just heard it read aloud, but to, to read it again and then just kind of make some comments as we go. So we're just going to go in and out of the text for a few moments and see what with some of the things that are being said here. And so I'm gonna to begin to read the first couple sentence, uh, sentences. This is Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. I become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wants to make uh, known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, some of the things maybe we're going to talk about today, you've already heard. So before we get into some of my thoughts, I'm going to put you on the spot for a minute. Zach said this might go poorly. I don't know how. Let's <laughs> know. Uh, I don't know how much you do the, the call and response question thing, but we're going we're gonna to try for a second. I would love to know, what have you been learning about Colossians so far the last few weeks? So just taking a moment, like are there some themes or some big ideas that have stood out? Because it's a good chance that it's going to be the same stuff today. Paul repeats himself more than I do. He just circles and circles and circles. So is there something you've heard already that's kind of you've remembered or that's profound or that's interesting? What have you heard already? Just shout it out. If you've heard something from Colossians so far. Jesus is head of the church. church. It's kind of a big deal. That's good. Yeah, thank you. We are joking before the sermon, that the answer is always Jesus, so <laughs> nailing it, first of all. Thank you. Uh, Jesus, good answer. Anything else? What, what are you hearing? What, is there something that you read? It's like, oh, man, that, that shakes me, or I've got to maybe change the way that I live because of something I just heard. All right, no problem. You, won't, you may not remember what I say by next week either, so um, hope, hopefully you do. Maybe take some notes, um, or I'll test you at the end. We'll see. The first thing that strikes me is this, and, and if you read anything from Paul, who writes a lot of letters to churches, this bit is going to be totally familiar. And he begins by saying, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And Paul talks a lot about suffering. And as the Western church, we love to talk about suffering because we think we have it so hard done by with, with our gadgets and our full supply of food and air conditioning and heating. And like, we think it's pretty tough. Paul was going through some things. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's in prison. And I don't mean prison like uh, some Scandinavian prison where you, you know you can go to university and do cool things. It's like, the only food you get is if your friends bring it to the door. Like he's in prison and it's not great. It's really, he's suffering. He's been beaten. He's been attacked. He's, you know, every possible thing that could go wrong to him seems to have gone wrong for him. There was some, I remember some preacher, I don't remember his name, but he was saying everywhere that Paul went, Paul was stoned and beaten. And everywhere he went as a guest preacher, he got a cup of tea and free meal. It's like, as a society, like we've come a long way from Paul. He was suffering for his church. He was literally beaten. He was stoned and not in the way we understand that word. He was injured for the gospel. He was suffering. And and the way he frames it wasn't just suffering because many of us go through difficult things. We go through trials. Are those trials for the church? No, sometimes they're just tough days. Paul was going through trials because of what he was doing for the churches. He frames it. He says, I rejoice in my suffering for you. And, and he is participating in something. He is, he is doing work for others. He, he's left his comfort zone, and he's moving around the Mediterranean, planting churches, writing letters, talking to people, and doing just incredible work. And there is a consequence to the kind of work he's doing. People are angry, people are frustrated because he's talking about changing the whole religious system and it's like, we're no longer going to the temples, it's no longer about sacrifice and circumcision, but it's Jesus and people are like, whoa, that's heresy. And they're attacking him, it's not simple work. He's suffering for the gospel. And then he says this line that, honestly, it's kind of bewildering a little bit because he says, I am I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And if you read that, you go, <laughs> lacking, like, was it not enough? Like what, what Jesus did, was it like, how is it lacking? What about what Jesus did is lacking? That's like, my first read of that is, oh, that, that sounds bad, right? What's he saying here? I think is, is like what Jesus dies and all of the work that he does is perfect and complete and everything, it doesn't need anything. He, he died for you. You don't need to do anything about that. He died for you. But the notion of making that work complete is being part of his church. Like if someone cures cancer, but then like you, don't, you never take the, the medicine. You, like, you know what I mean? Like it's, you're missing something. There's no reflection on the cure, no reflection on the medical work that was done. But if you don't actually ingest the medicine, you don't actually, I don't want to talk about vaccines. We won't go down that road. But if you don't take the, the stuff to make you better, there's something incomplete about it, right? Like even if someone's incredible, they're doing amazing things. Jesus, what Jesus did, there's nothing lacking. But as Paul sees it for the church, like what is lacking is to build up this church that is a response to the movement that Jesus started. And a lot of uh, what, what Paul says, and he says it in one of his other letters, it's always this sort of, in view of what God did, in view of God's mercy, I, and then he fills in the blank, and it's all the other stuff that Paul is up to. And that is always how it's framed, and it is always how it should be framed. Because as much as I could say, you should do good things for the church, go out and do whatever, that is all as a response to the fact that God first loved you the way you are today, right? And that's important because we could get into a a mentality where we think I've got to earn God's favor. There's plenty of people around the world in different religions who believe exactly that, that I could impress God with my actions if I just do X, Y, and Z. But that is not what Paul is advocating here. He's talking about this completion of like, hey, an amazing thing has happened. So I, I want to be part of the response. I, I want, in view of God's mercy, I want to do something incredible. And so he, he goes on to talk about, um, about the, the notion of who is the, the church and to, to be the church is to suffer. And I think that's something that Paul puts into all of his letters. And Paul talks about suffering in a number of places he talks about us suffering. And again, I think we need to make a distinction. I don't mean suffering like um, you're not sleeping through the night because you have an infant. That is, no, that's, I'm suffering, my, my joints are sore because I don't sleep anymore. You might be suffering because of work. There's a lot of suffering that is real and, and God cares about it. But what, Jesus, what Paul is talking about here is there's a suffering that comes when you actually do God's work, right? And, and I hear, I guess, I mean, in North America, there's a lot of talks from certain little pockets about like the persecution that takes place here. And having lived in a, in a Muslim country for eight years, you're good, man. <laughs> you're pretty good, okay? Because we're here right now. I, there's, there's a phase where it's like, we got to be free to worship. Like we're free to worship right now. We're here. This is, this is amazing because don't take this for granted. It doesn't happen anywhere in the world. Everywhere in the world, I should say. There are places where if you convert to Christianity, you go to jail. There are places where it is still a capital punishment to convert to Christianity. That is the world we live in. And so when Paul talks about suffering for the gospel, he's not saying, man, I had a fight with someone on Twitter because I was a jerk and they called me out. No, we're talking about actually loving our neighbors so profoundly and so sacrificially that it starts to kind of hurt, right? I mean, even when we're talking about giving, it's like, oh, I give 10%. And like, if it doesn't hurt, if you're not suffering, like we're called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That's big. Not suffering because like life often has suffering, but suffering for the sake of the gospel. I'm suffering for your sake. And there's this completing of this, what Jesus does. And I think part of that is that what Jesus' whole story was suffering. Like he came to this earth. He came from heaven to earth and then, like day after day, we load them down with our problems, and it's like, oh, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, give me food. Jesus, heal my kid. Like, and then you see Jesus consistently teach this way. And then what he goes to the cross and this ultimate suffering that we remembered in really profound ways a few weeks ago at Good Friday and Easter. That it's like if you want to be part of my church, well, do do what Jesus do what the head of the church is up to because he's leading the way, right? Suffering for the sake of others. Think it's kind of, I think it's kind of our DNA. I think we probably have to figure out what that means. And then he uses, and Paul uses this word a lot, he uses the word servant. I'm a servant. And we can take that for granted sometimes, because we are, in some ways, a long way away from societies where there is, you know, uh, maids and, well, I don't, I don't know, maybe you guys have maids or something. I don't, know. I don't know what's going on in the States. I guess I should, again, we don't have maids in Canada, really, that's not a thing. But I got to say, in Kuwait, like most families have a dozen maids, one for every kid, one to drive, one to do the cooking, one to do the tutoring Like people have, that's a thing around the world. And, and, and the way you see people treat maids and servants, like if you had to put down a spectrum, you think in good, bad, probably not great usually, right? People dismiss servants, people look down on servants. And Paul's like, do you know what the word I'm looking for, for my self-identity? Servant, right? Jesus is the head of the church, not me, not Zach, not anyone in this room. We are servants of the gospel, and there is a humility that comes with that. Because when you're a servant, you're not the boss, you're not setting the tone, you're not, oh, I'm doing strategic planning. No, you are serving. And as I see it, that serving always comes with with contrast, or sorry, it comes with suffering. When when we serve, it comes with suffering. And the, the reason the word contrast is in my head, I was thinking, again, our society today in the Western church, we have these massive churches, the private planes and like the really cool stuff and, and famous speakers. And we believe them just because of their name. I, I don't know who you're following. You could put someone's name and, and, and then suddenly you're like, oh, they said it. It must be true. You know, like we, we love celebrities in the church. I'm thinking maybe, maybe we're missing the mark on that. Maybe we need to be more caring about serving and washing the toilets and caring for our neighbors than, than being famous quotable people in the world. Because if we're getting all of that reputation in society, I've got to ask questions. Again, when Paul went places, he was suffering and he was put in prison. And when we go around, it's like, yeah, life's pretty good, right? There's a suffering, there's a servant mentality that comes from it. And I think that if we truly pursue what Jesus lays out for us, if we truly pursue how Paul does it, it's going to always end in sacrifice. That could just be that you gave all your money to a charity from some random guy who showed up. I don't know. But it always ends in sacrifice. It always ends in, with us giving something of ourselves for the sake of others. Because that is what it means to be the church. To be the church is not to go and to consume and have a grand old time and like, oh man, the singing was so good. It blessed me so much. And you're like, you know what? Maybe spend the rest of your week blessing your neighbor then, right? Because like that is what we're called to. And that's what I see in, in, in Paul's language here. As I suffer for the church and I complete it and I'm the servant, as I put those words together and those ideas together, that is, that is what I, I hear. And maybe I'm wrong. Again, you, you can see through my bias, hopefully. And then he comes to this language of saying, um, to make the word of God fully known. And I think it's always important to say, like, what are we talking about here? And, and this is one of my pet peeves in the church and maybe we do it here. So I don't wanna critique anyone But when we say the word of God, we're not talking about the paperbacks in our pews. When we're talking about the word of God, we're talking about, what's the the answer always? Jesus, the word of God was made flesh. So when we say we are people of the word, we don't mean we're a book club, because I think we're lost if we get there. If we wander around saying we, and these are true statements to say we're Bible believing, that's true, but if that's the opening line, we follow, I think it's up here somewhere, making Jesus known. Like that's what we're about. It's in the name, we're Christians, we follow Jesus. But I think sometimes it's a lot easier to follow scripture. And there's a difference. And let me just point out, there's a difference here because if I follow just scripture, then I can justify war real easily. If I follow just scripture, I could find a passage to justify slavery, couldn't I? We did it for centuries, unfortunately. If I follow just scripture, I can twist and turn and make it all about me. But if I follow Jesus and I read the scripture through that lens and I see that all scripture, how does John phrase it? All scripture, the word of God was made flesh. And so I can no longer look at Joshua or Moses and go, I'm gonna follow Moses and I'm gonna like, I'm gonna, you know, rebel against, I'm I'm gonna follow Joshua, I'm gonna tear down some walls. All of that, if all of the the word of God became human and grew arms and legs, it would be Jesus. So if you're scratching your head going, man, I, I don't understand this passage from the Old Testament or the New Testament, like what does it look like in practical? Preacher, please apply the scripture for me. It was applied in a dramatic way All scripture became human form and died on a cross. There's your application. The word was made flesh. So when Paul talks about the word, as I see it, we're not talking about following just scripture. We are using scripture to point us to Jesus, the way, the truth, and the light. That is is the word of God made flesh. And then he uses this word mystery, which... Real smart people could spend hours talking about this. We're going to kind of almost skate right through it, and maybe Zach will have to come circle back next week on this one. But I think about mystery because sometimes when we talk about mystery, we think of just things that are uh, hidden or, or unknown or more specifically unknowable. And so we'll use mysteries like the cop-out. Like, oh, it's a mystery, I guess. I'll never know, Right. Like, imagine, like, a, a doctor or something be like, well, you know, this, this it's a mystery. I'll just give up, right? We were talking about this yesterday over dinner. There's a, like, there's a constant pursuit of actually getting better and accepting that we're humble enough to know that I don't know everything, but also eager enough to keep growing. When we say mystery, I don't mean to, to put up some fuzzy curtain and say, don't, you don't need to know this bit. You know, it's just, it's a mystery, And it's not a cop-out. It's not an excuse for us to say, I'm not going to learn anymore. But there is something profoundly interesting about how, like, mystery and what's unknown and how much can we know. And in the ancient world, when I was an undergraduate and... I grew up in a generation where we went to university for subjects that probably didn't matter and spent all the money doing good things. And I did an undergraduate degree in classical studies, which, if you've not heard of, it's because it's a, you could never get a job in it. But it's Greek and Roman, like history and architecture and society and language. And so for four years, we just pondered life's mysteries of 2,000 years ago, uh, and particularly like archaeology and real practical things that really going to get you good jobs in life. And one of the things you talked about a lot is anytime you, you look at like a Greek temple and they'd be like, I wonder what this is. And archeologists are like, what's this thing? And I imagine like if you looked at this building in a thousand years, like what's the table? What's this all about? And, and it's always, the default was like, it must've been ceremonial purposes, you know? Could have been, like, oh, this must be ceremonial. Oh, could just be a music stand, like, we don't know. But frequently what they talked about in ancient society was you had something called like mystery cults. These cults that were all about the mystery. And like, oh, well, I wonder what's going on there. And cult, you know, big seed cult, like super cults. Like, you know, they, they would do all sorts of wild things. If you've ever heard of like, you know, oracles, I think it's a software company, you know, but you know, gonna go visit the, go visit the Oracle. You know, you have these kind of ancient language. Maybe that's even, you've seen that in movies. Typically, the folks in the oracle, they were just super high on weird drugs. And I mean, this literally, they're just like really high. And you'd go and they'd like mumble some crazy stuff. And you're like, okay, okay. You, no surprise, they thought it was a mystery. Because <laughs> it's like, how to unpack that? Because that was the religious ideology for many people in the world that Paul's traveling in, Right. Like, to, to a mystery was to go to these secret cults and talk to the weird, like, drug-induced coma oracle person to be like, what do I, where do I go in life? And they're like, oh, right, and then backwards. And you're like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, it's confusing, and there's a mystery. And I think of uh, another story that Paul was involved with, with this kind of mystery cult. And was, Paul was wandering around Athens, the kind of center of this Greco empire, this Hellenistic world, and and he comes across a statue. It's got like no name, and you're like, "Well, oh, that's weird to worship a god with no name." And and how did maybe you know this story? Paul's like, "Let me tell you, I know the name of this god. The mystery has been revealed. All of that stuff as you sought like weird religious solutions, you wanted to know the mysteries of the world. You want that revealed? Well, just as it's true that all of the word of God for the Hebrew people, Scripture was made revealed in Jesus." For the Greek people listening to that, um, when they hear the word word, they're not thinking a scripture. They're thinking philosophy, right? So the the word of God was made flesh for them as well, but in a different way. Somehow Paul, or in this case, John used this word brilliantly. The word of God made flesh. Philosophy, the wisdom, the mystery cults of ancient Athens and Greece are made, are revealed and we are, is known in Jesus. And so that mystery, yeah, there's still, there's still things we don't understand. We're talking about like communion. There's, there's things we're like, oh, I, we're not the brightest people sometimes. And if you think you figured it all out, you're definitely wrong. But I can say this, we know what the mystery is. It's been revealed and it's Jesus. Do I know the details? Do I know the inner workings of God? My head's a lot smaller than God's capacity right? You try to explain theology to your dog, you're going to find out very quickly it's a, it's, a, it's a one-way conversation and it's not going well, right? There are things beyond my understanding I will never know. I still chase and I pursue, but it's important to say this, the mystery has been made known. The mystery is Jesus. Jesus has been revealed to his people as the unknown God, made known as the, instead of the religious ways of seeking, uh, t- uh, seeking, seeking, Power on your own. God has come and made known to his people. The word of God has made life, is made into flesh. And so this is how uh, Paul now, we're you know, off my tangents, we're back to the scripture. And he then says this, we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. And I think it just restates in my mind, at least that, what are we proclaiming? We're not just proclaiming scripture. It's not enough to scrawl some lines of text on a sandwich board sign and shout from the street corner. We are proclaiming Jesus, the word made flesh, and how he frames it here, he's talking about warning and teaching everywhere. And you know for sure that some people are like, oh, I'm going to focus on the warning bit. You know, I'm going to, I'll do that. I'll be the guy on the sandwich board sign on the street corner. We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So we have wisdom in this. And we present everyone mature in Christ. Again, maybe I'm like repeating myself too much, but it's been done by Paul. So get over it. Um, We're not being made mature in scripture. That's tough work, it's a big book and there's a lot of stuff in there to figure out. Really smart people dedicated their lives and we benefit from those scholars. But our goal in in church is not to become so perfected in our understanding of scripture that we're just walking little dictionaries. We, our goal here is to become mature in Christ. Not mature in scripture, that's part of it. And, and learn, obviously you wanna know a person, you read their stories, you read their biographies, you read the prediction, you read absolutely. But that is part of going towards the goal, which is to be mature in Christ. And Paul says he, he labors for this. He, he, this is hard work. He strives with his strengths that works, he strives with his strength that works powerfully in me. And I think this is a beautiful thing because sometimes we can get caught Thinking this is all about my work and how hard I can chase Jesus. And my, I conjure up my faith and my understanding and me, 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 and you can see the problem. The way Paul frames it is as he does, as he labors, it's hard work, yes, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. We are not doing this alone right? Jesus, and in this case, Paul is saying that there's this thing, there's this strength that comes in you as you chase, as you follow, as you pursue. So as we become um, knowledgeable in scripture or mature in Christ or all of these things that are co-related, we are doing so by the power of God's presence that is here and now. Now, I I said I very rarely quote famous people, especially Christians, because they get enough attention, but... I want to mention a book because the guy's been dead for a long time, so he's not making money off it. You know, Brother Lawrence, If you guys talk, we talked about this at dinner last night. Brother Lawrence, and he wrote this tiny book. It's not that interesting in terms of length, but what is profound about it is the way that this dude lived his life. And that is with an awareness that God's presence, his spirit, God's power is here. So we didn't have to walk in and say, God, would you please come to this church? It's like he knew this land before you showed up. He knew you before you showed up. And there's a power in God's presence that is not about us inviting him into this space because he didn't need the invitation, but rather us being aware. And and, uh, Brother Lawrence there would, would use the phrase, practicing the presence of God in this place. And when I see what what Paul is saying here, I'm reminded that if we are to do this pursuit of Jesus, if we are to suffer the way Paul did and the way Jesus did, that the way that that is even sustainable is by the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot just give away all of your stuff and then think, oh, well, so what next? There's there's a partnership in God's holy presence on this planet where we are with him, The, the divine Holy Spirit is here We partner with him and we do as Jesus did. And that whole suffering language to circle back, to use your Zoom language, to circle back to suffering. Jesus said it all the time. Didn't he like take up my cross, take up your cross and follow me? That sounds real cute. I'm gonna put that on necklace. I'm gonna wear a cross necklace maybe. This is a torture device that people die on. And he's like, do that. Pick up your torture gadget. Pick up the thing that will kill you and follow me. You're like, oh, that sounds hard. And it is. To be fair, it is very hard. Don't don't be mistaken. Paul, what Paul was doing was not simple. And we read these beautiful stories of him being like, I'm joyful in the suffering. And I'm like, what what was in the next letter when you put down the pen? I don't know. And I don't even want to speculate, but it was not easy. And you even hear that in his tone. This is not easy stuff, but what makes it possible, not easy, but what makes it possible, as he says, it is by the power of his presence working through me. The Holy Spirit is real and here. Now, the beginning of chapter two, this is the last bit we'll read. And he says this, for I want to know how greatly I am struggling. I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have in the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All wisdom and knowledge are where? They're in Jesus. All wisdom and knowledge. And and again, going back to John, it wraps it up in that language of all wisdom and knowledge are made flesh. It's Jesus, you wanna know those things? By all means, look at scripture, but you wanna know those things? Follow Jesus. And what does he do? He suffers for the sake of others you wanna understand God's heart in some more profound way, you'll see it on the page, absolutely. And for those who just love to kind of see it happen, absolutely, read scripture. But at some point, you wanna understand what God was doing, participate in his gospel. And that looks like going out of our comfort zones and suffering for the sake of others. That's how Paul lived it. That's That's exactly what Jesus did. And the early church, they didn't have much of a choice. They suffered for the gospel because it was illegal and they were killed for it. And that is the case in many places of the world today. It is not a simple thing. People suffer for the gospel. So when we think in our society here, like what does that look like? Because I'm pretty sure we are still called to suffer for the gospel. And right now we live in a pretty safe society. No one's, it's pretty good. We're still called to suffer. That might mean we have to give a little bit more than, than what we think we're giving, or we need to spend a bit more time loving our neighbors, whether it be, I don't know, mowing their lawn, whatever, just we are actually loving our neighbors in such a profound way that it, it actually, we actually begin to suffer. And, and that seems counterintuitive. Why would I do something that hurts? If you ever exercise, you know what that's about. You do things that hurt sometimes, right? That's, that's it, that's the gospel. Not, not working out, but <laughs> that's, that's a side thing. When we think about this next bit that, G, that, that Paul says here, I think it sums up some of the most important things you'll ever see in scripture and I was talking about some of that at the, at the break here, every sermon comes down to the same thing. <laughs> he says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love. When asked, like, what is, it the, what is the thing that you will be known for as the church? What is Jesus saying? Like, what is that thing that would define you? How will they, they will, you will know you're my people by your love. Is that true today in our society? Is it true? Right? We got work to do. You're like, oh, no, we're good. No, we've got work to do. If, if your neighbors see the church as uh, judgmental and angry and unloving, we have failed. Now, they might think you're foolish. That's okay. Paul was thought to be foolish, and he seemed quite okay with it. They might think you're wrong. It's okay. They might not even agree with our scripture. Okay. But if they think you're unloving, we got a problem. Because that is the one thing we're supposed to be known for. We are to be known by our love. In fact, when when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? You know this story, maybe. The religious leaders, what is the most important commandment? What does he say? What's the, maybe someone knows the answer. What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And, and that was the correct and expected answer. That's the ending of the, the you know, that should have been where it ended. Like if I said to you, what's the, you know, the American, your little motto, life, liberty, and the, There's a correct ending to that sentence, isn't there? Right, especially as a Canadian, that's why I let you finish just in case I botched it up. There's a correct ending. And when Jesus was asked, what is is the most important thing? There was only one correct answer. What you just said, that's the correct answer. And Jesus is like, oh yeah, real quick. One other thing from Leviticus, not even one of the 10 commandments, just like random Leviticus, who always gets forgotten, in Leviticus, oh yeah, and also love your neighbor as yourself. And you can imagine them being like, you, you should have stopped at the right answer. You mean, Like if, if you said to me, uh, if I said the, the, the way of this is the life, liberty, and the pursuit of loving your neighbor, you'd be like, that's, that's not right. And what Jesus said in that moment was incorrect in terms of what they were expecting. He failed that little test. But he told us what it is that we are meant to be as his followers. You want to be my followers, you're going to love God, you're going to love others. And that loving is gonna cause suffering sometimes. When we love our enemies, when we love others, it is not always going to be easy. It's gonna cost us. It's gonna be, there's gonna be a price to pay. And in our society, we, we kind of excuse love as like this mushy, emotional thing that we maybe circle back to once a year at Valentine's Day, maybe a birthday. We're like, oh, we love you, okay, cool. And, and typically when you think of love, we, we exchange, it's exchange. I love people who love me back, right? Isn't that how we normally love people? Like the thing about the people that you're like, I, I deeply and profoundly love, in most cases, they're people who are going to love you back. And if they don't, there's usually a time frame on how long your love's going to be extended, isn't there? Like being honest, you're like, I love you and for now. Um, and then like, but don't stab me in the back because then I'll stop loving you. Like that's, our, that's nature. That's, that's how we treat each other. And we are called to something so different that is that we are actually to call to love others, full stop, not those who love us back. And I think it's important for us to define that love. Paul says here that we're to be encouraged and joined together in love. And you think, oh, just like happy harmony. Is that like, what, what do we mean love? That's important to, I think, figure out. So one of my favorite passages to figure out what Paul means by the word love, I think is often misused. I'll be honest. I think it's often misused because if, if I'm about to tell you this passage, you maybe know where we're going, but typically it's called a marriage passage. Do you know the one I'm talking about? 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. It's not a marriage passage. It's nothing to do with marriage because marriage is it's like it's a contract and you're loving each other. That's nice. You love me and I'll love you back. Great. And if it does if someone stops loving, I don't know, they're in divorce court or something. But this is different because this is how we're called to love our enemies. This is the language that we are called to love people we don't even know. People like the lady on the screen, people in other cities, politicians whom we hate and despise and who may be terrible human beings. This is how we're meant to treat those people. This is the thing that is to bind this little church together right here. We are to love each other. And here's how Paul defines love. It's patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it is not boastful, it is not arrogant. It's not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable, and it does not keep record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, love endures all things. It goes on to say more about it. I'm gonna pause there. And again, if you've been in church and you hear that at a marriage, think, cool, that's nice. Also applies to your enemies also applies to those who hurt you, those who persecute you, those who want you dead. Like think about Jesus because I think he so beautifully manifests this passage in his life. Even while, what's the phrase? While we were yet sinners, he dies for us. Imagine that, that your love for neighbors is so profound. You're not just suffering for them, but you would give your whole life for them. And I don't mean people who are nice to you. I mean, the very people who hate you. That is... Mind boggling. That is who we're called to be. When I step back and and look at this whole sort of passage, and you think, what is it that Paul is calling us to? Or what is it that he is living in? Or what way is he living that maybe we could be inspired by or do something about? Paul lives in such a way that he is so wholeheartedly committed to the gospel that he's willing to suffer for others, suffer for the church. And then he wants to proclaim Jesus. Good, that's, I mean, you're suffering, you're proclaiming. It will always end in suffering. And, and it ends also in joining together in love. Again, when asked, what is the most important thing? Love God, love others. You could summarize almost any passage of scripture with that phrase. And I think you could pa- summarize this one. And I would try to summarize anything I can because I think that's where, that's where the rubber meets the road. And I'm, a, I, I'm not a, a profound theologian that has really bright ideas. I'm a very pragmatic, practical person, just likes to do things. And so some people, they can wax eloquently about the, the, the mysteries of the unknown. But as I look at Scripture, I try to keep things as simple as I can for myself. Paul is living in such a way that is not above and beyond what we are called to do. Oh, Paul has a special calling. Does he? Like Paul is called to, to love his neighbors, to preach the gospel. Well, guess what? As it turns out, anyone who follows Jesus has that same calling, right? You, me, we're, we're together in this. We're joined together in the love that we have for each other and the love that we have for neighbor. Now I wanna just start to move towards our, our Q&R, which uh, we'll do in a second, but I wanna kind of give another pitch, another like mm, Bethany kids. And, and it's a story of how that love transforms lives. So if you will forgive me once more. And she mentioned it. She mentioned a a Lady Francesca. Faith, Faith is just in her early 20s right now. And she mentioned this Lady Francesca. I want to tell you Francesca's story because it's incredible. And I think it, to me, it is a demonstrable version of how love changes lives. So Francesca was born also with spina bifida. She was born in the region of Kenya called like Samburu near the Maasai with like the long red robes and the canes and that, that whole aesthetic you have from Hollywood maybe. So she was born in the Samburu region. She was born with spina bifida. And what that meant was that when she was born, her family saw this disability and they see it sadly the way that many of us look at disability and they think, oh, that's, that's bad. That's a curse. Now, we, like, we could judge that for a second. The reality is many of us do the exact same thing. We look down on people who have a different existence than we do. And they look down on her and, and, and this is where things get really difficult because in their community, when you have a curse, you get rid of the curse. And they did so with poison. They tried to poison her and they tried to kill her. This is a young, beautiful person made in God's image. They tried to poison her because of her medical condition. They didn't understand spina bifida. They didn't know anything about that. They're a very rural community. Fortunately, They failed. Not and if, More than once, they, they tried, but they failed. Francesca gets into her teenage years. And she, again, this is similar, a parallel story to Faith here, something that she kind of glazed over, but is difficult to think about, is that the, if you have spina bifida and a number of these other medical conditions, when you, your bowels and your bladder work very differently than everyone else around you. And so as you might've heard her say that she was wet her whole life. We're talking about soaked in urine, just to be clear. Her medical condition, her lack of access to medical care meant that she was soaked in urine. You can imagine the infections that come from that, the social shame she talked about. No one wanted to be. So Francesca, when she was in her teenage years, her family was like, we're going to a wedding. You're not coming. Of course, you're not coming because why would you want, like, we don't want you at a wedding. And she was like, she was gutted. She was in her teens and, and she tried to take her own life again. She's like, I wish they had been successful the first time. That is the kind of person we are often trying to care for. This was Francesca over a decade ago. Now, Francesca eventually discovered Bethany Kids, and we were able to treat some of her conditions, able to help her, help her with how to care for her her bowels in a way that allowed her to participate in broader society and move around. And and that whole interaction through the, the cause of medicine allowed her to find Jesus or more appropriately for Jesus to, be known to her for her to know Jesus. Her whole family began to attend church and be transformed. I think her dad now eventually became an elder at their church. You imagine that radical transformation because in this case, a surgeon showed up in her life and made a difference. That was an American surgeon in those days. One person showed up in someone else's life and total transformation. And now you fast forward, forward, and now Francesca is the one helping other people and she's part of that team that is inspiring a new generation of people to practice that love in very pragmatic, practical ways. When you are called to love your neighbor, absolutely please donate to Bethany Kids, but also love your neighbor here in town. Love your neighbor who persecutes you. Just do something about it. And we're in a moment, we're going to take communion, and there's going to be another chance to kind of circle back on that. But Whatever you take away from this day, I'm pretty sure every one of us, tomorrow, there's an opportunity for us to be more loving than we were today. I'm, I'm confident. Confident. There's a way for us to be even better. Now, we're going to take a moment for questions and responses. And I just need to say how brilliant it is how you frame that. Because I don't know if I'm going to have the answer. So I'm glad you don't call it a Q&A, because that could have been a disappointment for everybody. But a Q&R, I will respond. And it might just be, good question. Well done. Now... <laughs> you know good that's a response so just we're we're managing expectations right now that it may well be that's all you're going to get but then you'll feel nice and I'll say it's a good question maybe that'll be enough we're, I don't know if there's yeah. that. Do we have I, some questions? I have one.
0: Yeah. Good. On?
1: If you haven't said anything yeah. else, like text them in. Yeah, up. you text them
0: in. So I love that you tried to get everyone to talk to you at the beginning. And uh,
1: there was, some, yeah. There but,
0: some uh, you know, like uh, way to go, Brian. But that's why we do this anonymously because we don't want to talk. That'd be <laughs> that'd be embarrassing. A
1: church of introverts. That's fine.
0: Yeah. Okay. So uh, I love this. Uh, do you think the Pharisees saw Jesus as loving? Or the riots the apostles started, were they riots of love? Did the Roman guards chain up Paul because they thought he was loving too much? I like it. Ooh. Yeah. It's a little I, spicy I, right
1: there. It is spicy. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. No, good question. Um, it's, it's worth asking, like, why did, why did these people get um, thrown in prison? And it's frequently not just because of the riots. Why did the riots start? Like, to, to back it up, mostly those apostles were not starting riots, to be clear. They weren't like stirring it up. What were they doing? They were saying things that were so provocative that riots started. And typically those riots were started by the religious leaders because they were so angry at the words that the apostles had just said. Why was Jesus in trouble? Aside from that one moment where he's just like trashed a bit of the temple for a moment, for the most part, they're angry because he's wandering around saying, I'm the son of God. Or he's going around saying, oh, and you're forgiven. And it's like, you're not authorized for that. Like people pay good money to be forgiven at the temple. You can't just, you can't just hand that out. So were they persecuted for loving? Arguably, maybe to a degree. They were persecuted because of the words that they were saying. They were persecuted and the riots started and they were thrown in jail because they were pushing up against authority, not with riots, to be clear, because I know that's like a thing around you. You're like, I'm still angry. You toss tea. I like tea. Why would you toss tea in the harbor? That's rude. That's vandalism. That's inappropriate. That's destruction of property. Inappropriate. <laughs> Boston Tea Party? That's not a tea party. That's riots, man. Just chill. We didn't do that. We, just, we had to wait 200 years to get our freedom, but like we got it eventually. Just, you know, no. Um, I told you I'm Canadian. Like sometimes we think differently. I want to come back to this because even in the early church, like why were these Christians being thrown into prison? One of the main reasons Christians were thrown into prison, and, and I'm moving beyond Paul, so apologies if we're extending beyond the question, um, was that they, they declared that Jesus was the only God. That was problematic. You could have Jesus as God, by all means, but not the only one. The Roman Empire had tons of gods, but you fill your boots, lots of gods around. But to say that Jesus is the only way, that got people in a lot of trouble. And the second thing, and this is more to push the point of love, is that one of the things that the, the early Christians refused to do was join the Roman army. Because they said, well, we can't fight for Caesar because we're in a different kingdom. It's like, whoa, yo. No, now now we got problems. So to a degree, yeah, there was moments where we were thrown in prison for, uh, for our love. But I don't think they would have seen it. They would have seen us as anti-establishment, I think. We were not behaving properly. Um, we were um, giving forgiveness when we didn't have the right to. I don't think those are any actions of violence. I think they're all actions of love. Um, so yes and no. That sounds too much like a politician's answer. I'm sorry, whoever sent that in, you're probably disappointed, but that's why it's a response, not an answer. <laughs> Managing expectations, you know what I mean? Is there another question or another?
0: Uh, no, that, that, was, that was the only one, nobody else, yeah. So, okay. so yeah, if you didn't like that, you can come talk to Peter privately yeah. later and he'll, yeah. uh, he'll go another round.
1: Say the same thing I just said. <laughs> Easy, not hard. Um, yeah, any other questions with your hands? Is that? Do we do that? No. Sometimes, Not, it's scary. It is scary. Do you have a question you wanna ask? Okay. Well done. It is a joy to be with you here. I just wanna say that again. It is a joy to be in a church because I'm Canadian. I said it a thousand times, you're American. And if we were just normal human beings, then those things would make us different, right? Because like, I'm Canadian, you're American. And if we are defined by our nationality, if we're defined by any of that, then we are on opposite sides of of whatever conflict exists in the world. But there's something incredible about standing in this place because none of those things really matter. They're interesting, like you wear blue and I wear black and you wear green, cool, that's interesting. But it doesn't define our identity and it, it shouldn't. Because if we come to church and we say, I'm gonna follow Jesus, the thing that defines us is Jesus is our King. So rather than you being, having worried about your president and me with my prime minister, those things are somewhat irrelevant because we have a king that unites us. And that's incredible. And that's a big, it's a pretty big tent because there's a lot of amazing denominations around the world. And that's so cool that we get to be united across cultures and languages and political ideologies under one kingdom, one tent, one, one God, Jesus. And that's an incredible thing. And then even as we come and we're, we prepare ourselves for this kind of moment of reflection, and there's a lot of language we could use to define what we're about to do here. And if you've never been in church, it's kind of a weird, peculiar thing. The early church, they used to think that Christians were cannibals because they said things like, we're eating God's body. Uh-oh, <laughs> that's weird. And then we'd like, we call each other brother and sister and then we'd marry those people. And you're like, oh, so cannibals and incest. So if you're new to church, I want to acknowledge that this whole thing is odd. This is weird. But what I think makes it special, I'm not gonna say it's not odd, it is odd, but there's something incredible because like 2000-ish years ago, Jesus is having this meal with his friends. He's having this religious celebration. He he said, I was like like, looking forward to spending this time with you. Passover, they're, they're remembering their history. They're remembering how God shows up and saves his people. And in that moment, Jesus, you think about who's at that table to me that's an incredible picture. I don't mean like the, the painting with them all sitting on one side for their selfies. I mean like just they're probably in a three-sided table hanging out, laying down and talking and just really being in a community together. And, and think about who's there. As Jesus like when you're about to do this whole thing and it's like, oh, is my body broken? Think about who's there, right? You maybe know some names. There's all the disciples we forget about, but there's a couple famous ones, right? Peter, what do we know about Peter in the 24 hours that follows the first time this meal took place? Jesus, never heard of him. (laughs) Once, one time, two times, three. Like, Jesus never heard of the guy. What about uh, Thomas? Who's that guy? What, What do we know about him? Jesus, I don't really believe you pulled this off. I don't fully believe this happened. What about Judas? I mean, that's kind of taken up a couple notches. And he's like, this for you, Judas, Peter, Thomas, the rest of you, whose names we forget. For you, this is my body broken for you. It's broken for you. I've suffered for you and I'd willingly do it. And he says this beautiful phrase and he says, do this in remembrance of me. And I think it is important as we participate in this sacrament, in this holy moment, I don't think he's just asking us to have bread once in a while. I don't think that's the point. He's saying, I have broken my body for all of you. I have suffered for all of you, to to bring that back, Now do that in remembrance of me. When we do this today, there's a few things happening that I think are worth kind of getting in our minds. We are remembering that God's action took place first. He suffered and died for you a long time ago, and it it is out of your control. He did it, it's done. Now he invites you to participate. And today we're gonna come and you're gonna take a piece of bread and you're gonna remember how his body was broken and, and beat for you. You're going to take this this wine or this grape juice and you're going to remember that, that he's initiated a new covenant, not based on temple sacrifice, but on his body so that we are made whole and beautiful and well. And when we remember that and do this in remembrance of me, that includes suffering for our neighbors. That includes our bodies being broken for our neighbors. And this moment is so special because this has been going on for like 2,000 years. We're talking about that like old prayers sometimes. We're just like, Imagine the people who uttered these same words, who utter these words of grace and beauty together. Imagine around the world in languages that you and I do not understand, maybe this weekend they have done this exact same thing together. So there's a beauty of communion. When we say we are united, as Paul said, we are united in our love, this is a moment to remember that, to practice it just a little bit, get those muscles going so that all week we can continue to commune with God. So I'm gonna pray and then the music's just gonna, happen while we close our eyes as as it happens in church. And then I just invite you to come and pray and think about God's sacrifice for you and and how we can participate and how we can love our neighbor. Would you bow your heads with me as we go into a time of prayer? Jesus, you are holy and set apart. And absolutely, there are times we don't understand the fullness of who you are. You created all things, universes and galaxies, beyond all measure, beyond all understanding. And God, as we come to this moment, we begin with words of worship and awe that you are good. You're all powerful. We bow at your knee. As we've heard Paul's words and and, and as we've thought about the scripture that that has been presented, I'm thinking again of how Paul responded to the call that was on his life, to love others, to sacrifice, to suffer for the sake of others. As we come to this communion table, we remember that you initiated that sacrifice first. It is not by our actions. It is not by any sacrifice we might do tomorrow that would, that would earn your favor because we already have your favor. You died on the cross while we were still sinners. You loved us profoundly, beautifully, and holy. God, I pray that in this moment, we might remember so beautifully what you have done for us so that all week we might remember that you are still with us we might remember in this moment how you sacrifice for us so that all we we might sacrifice for others. God, we ask that each of us would open our hearts and minds to be aware of your presence in this moment as we commune with you in prayer, and thanksgiving and remembrance.